Our guest today is the legendary Disney Imagineer, Joe Rohde, who is as close to a Renaissance man as you'll ever meet. It has been said that 30 seconds with Joe Rohde is like trying to drink from a fire hydrant. Get your raincoats on and get ready to be inspired. Expanding World in association with the Explorers Club are proud sponsors of this episode of Life's Tough, Explorers are Tougher, and the Global Exploration Summit a pioneering endeavor bringing together the world's leading explorers, sharing cutting-edge technology and innovations to propel us toward the next frontier in the future of exploration and to make a difference in the future of humanity. Visit GlexSummit.com to learn more about the Global Exploration Summit and the impactful men and women who are the heart and soul of scientific innovation and exploration. This is Life's Tough, but Explorers are Tougher. I'm your host, Richard Weiss. If you're new to Life's Tough, I'd like to welcome you and tell you a little about myself and the show. First of all, I love the outdoors. I always have, and I always will. And I've also been surrounded by explorers my entire life. My father, Richard Weiss Sr., was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane. The New York Times called him the Lone Eagle of the Pacific. Some of my fondest memories were standing out on our lawn underneath the stars with my father telling me how explorers use the stars to navigate. I guess we talked about a few other things as well. And speaking of talking, I host a television show called Born to Explore, it's on PBS stations around the country, so please check it out. And finally, I've been president of the world-famous Explorers Club. Just about every great explorer of the 20th and 21st century has been a member, including Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Jane Goodall, Theodore Roosevelt. Some people say it's like Harry Potter's Hogwarts, only for adults. I've heard stories that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You see, explorers are the type of people who walk in space, go to the bottom of the ocean, and stand on the highest summits. Scratch the surface of any explorer, and you'll find they're all storytellers. This show is about their tales. Welcome to our listeners, wherever you are in the world. I hope you're ready to be inspired. Our guest today, Joe Rohde, is a painter a teacher, a Pied Piper for animal conservation, and for 40 years, the lead designer or Imagineer at Disney. If you've been to one of the Disney theme parks, you most likely have seen one of his creations. Welcome to Life's Tough, Explorers Are Tougher. Joe Rohde, good to see you. It's good to be here. Thank you very much. And, and for those people who are not seeing Joe and just listening to the podcast, Joe, you, you're so famous for that earring I'm, I'm looking at, or earrings. What, what, is, what is the sort of uh, history of that? You know, many, many years ago, I, uh, I, was, I started by taking my Disney five-year lapel pin. I already had a little pierced ear, like 1980s, little posts that guys had back then. I took my Disney five-year pin, and I put it through that hole. 
but it's a lapel pin. So it made that hole bigger. And almost immediately then I was like, oh, I could put like two rings in there like a pirate. Um, and that just made it even bigger. And so I distinctly remember one morning, it's got to be like 1987, making a conscious decision. I'm going to cultivate this National Geographic ear. And whenever I go someplace I've never been before, I'm going to get a hoop, you know, like an indigenous earring and stick it through there as a souvenir and grow this ear. But that year, my career and my personal travel went through this sea change and by accident, not related. And I started traveling a lot. And so within a couple of years, I had this ear full of earrings. It looks like They're a keychain. I mean, it looks like when well, you see no, custodians. It looks like a keychain. Totally. I can put keys in there. I can slip my glasses through there. I can put a pencil through there. So there, were, there was a rumor, and you tell me if this is true, that at Disney, which is a fairly conservative company, that they don't allow men to wear earrings. Is that true? Well, we work at Walt Disney Imagineering, which is behind the scenes. And so the rules that were written for people who face the public in the parks, they're very different from what you see in the animators and in Imagineering and uh, those of us who work behind the scenes. So it never really applied. I never, there never was any uh, of appearance that we were obligated to who were supposed to remain invisible and never seen by the public. Uh, and then by the time that rule changed and we were seen by the public, it's too late because we already had the appearance that we had. So Joe, when, when I told a friend of a few friends of mine who are quote creative types that I was um, interviewing, they were, they were very excited. And so what is an Imagineer? Cause that, that sounds like the coolest job description ever. You were at Disney, you just retired. You were there for 40 years. How did you end up with, you know, at Disney and becoming what sounds like, and I'm sure you'll agree, the coolest job in the world. It really was a very, very cool job. Uh, I was, um, I was recruited uh, during the period when the company was building Epcot Center uh, and they just needed, needed, needed designers. I got a very, very entry level job in what we call the model shop at Walt Disney Imagineering. Now, Walt Disney Imagineering is the branch of the company that deals with the conceptualization, the design, and the building of physical things that get built. Not just rides and attractions, the parks that they go in, even the road systems and urban planning that the park goes in. So anything physical that is built, that's Imagineering. Uh, and that involves just a huge different number of disciplines, everything you can imagine from the business disciplines to the design disciplines, engineering disciplines. And it, a very collaborative environment that blends engineering with the arts, thus Imagineering. So I got this entry-level job in what we call the model shop, where you, you sort of help define the design by the building of three-dimensional models. I was really bad at that. Um, I mean, I'd done models from theater before, but not these kind of models. These were exceptional, incredible models. And so I moved over the course of a year or so into two-dimensional representation painting, which I knew I could do at a competitive level, uh, and eventually found myself in conceptual development. And once I got into conceptual development, that was kind of my wheelhouse. And then I ended up with a series of really unique projects that defined my career. Do you, do you remember the, the first physical thing that you built that the public could see? Because I think that 
Um, it's one thing writing letters back and forth to a boss, but when you actually see people looking at or touching something that you built, however small, it's a cool feeling. What was the first thing that you built that the public could see? Well, actually, it's 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 pivotal in a way. My very first job at Walt Disney Imagineering was working on the Mexico Pavilion for uh, Epcot Center. And when you go inside the Mexico Pavilion, uh, there's this uh, day for night scene. And at the far end of that scene is a Mayan pyramid. And that Mayan pyramid was the first thing I ended up working on. I wasn't the lead designer, uh, but it was the first thing that I worked on. And by coincidence, a very well-recognized um, pre-Columbian archaeologist was an advisor uh, to the project. And so I spent my days with him as well, getting all the inside scoop on stuff that wasn't published yet, which was fabulous. So you you are, and you know, I actually have worked on a project, which we'll get to later with you, but your approach... To projects has been two things, at least from me working. One is authenticity. And, you know, you're, you're known for researching these projects. And the other thing is diversity of ideas. You like sort of diversity of good ideas coming from different disciplines. Were you sent in the field to, um, to research those Mayan ruins or, or was that not the first thing that you actually went into the field for? On that project, I joined too late to be on the research team that went into the field. The first project that I went to the field on was a Norway pavilion. Some years later, I ended up, I ended up far north of the Arctic Circle in Kautokeino, which is in Sami uh, land. Um, Where the reindeer I'll never are. Forget, you know, like way the hell up watching the northern lights in this tiny little town of Kautokeino um, while inside this little bar a Polish jazz musician and a local indigenous singer were jamming. So I had a, I had a soundtrack to my vision of the Northern Lights with a lunar eclipse happening at the same time. No, I always think, now I have seen many um, Northern Lights, Aurora Borealis, and uh, I would say that that's a great show. I've seen um, Total Eclipse of the Sun, which I think to me is the greatest show on earth but it lasts such a short time period that you don't have time to just relax and enjoy it. You feel like you got to soak it in in that two minutes. But I know with the uh, Northern Lights that if it happens for a few hours, you can just sort of imagine. What was that experience for you? Because you didn't grow up in a Northern climate. Oh, no, 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 no. I grew up in the tropics. I grew up in the Hawaiian Islands. I mean, I, I, I um, you know, I not only so I, I whenever I'm in a cold place, I have this compulsion to make sure I'm super, super, super well prepared because it's so alien to me. And yet I love cold places. Um, so I stayed out there until, you know, my mustache hairs were frozen and brittle and my toes are aching. And I'm sure I'm on the verge of like, you know, developing frostbite. And then I dashed back inside. But this thing, this thing about real experience, it's, it's important what I spent my career doing is not making movies, which are two-dimensional, but making three-dimensional experiences. And that is why the experience of real places was so important. It wasn't just that in order to collect a visual record of what they looked like, you're going places to get a, almost a kinesthetic record of what they feel like. What is it like to be here? It's a more complicated kind of research. 
you know, you have spoken about the transformational power of adventure. And I, I guess probably one of your most famous projects is Animal Kingdom. And you've made the point that 99% of the people who visit Animal Kingdom will never go to the African savannah or they'll never see tigers in um, India. Now, I have seen those things and I have been to Animal Kingdom. And I just thought the, my gosh, if I did not hear other people around me, I would have felt I was in those areas. The attention to the pottery that the tigers are around to even the types of trees and vegetation you have in the African safari stuff. Uh, Take me on your approach to this project from who's the first person who comes up to you and says, Hey, I want to make this really experiential theme park on animals. So in that case, that, that was the CEO, Michael Eisner. Uh, It was his idea that we do something to do with animals. Uh, And there was no, um, Beyond that, there wasn't much of a clue other than his instinct. People love animals. People love Disney. If Disney did an animal thing, people would love that. Um, And yet, at that time, you're facing two issues that were design challenges. One is that the existing paradigm for how to do animals was a zoo. And the economics of a zoo do not match our business. Uh, And so there's a whole dossier of stuff going, look, you can't do this because a place with animals is a zoo. And a zoo is not an economic that we can run. And on the other hand, you had another paradigm, which is a theme park. Uh, and the, the gold standard for that theme park was the Magic Kingdom. And you had another group of people going, no, 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 you can't do that. Because theme parks are these idealized places where everything runs the same every single day, where things remain as they are, where we revisit these beloved stories. And animals aren't like that. So you can't do this. And so our job then, the first job, isn't a design job. It's really kind of an intellectual analysis job of like, what in the world does it mean when you combine the word Disney with the word animal that this is going to be a place? Um, and where it all began to revolve is around adding something that had not been put together in quite this, by bringing the authenticity and the realism, which meant Things were not going to be the same every single day. They were going to change. You were going to be caught up in history, caught up in politics. That's going to happen to the theme park. And by bringing narrative structure, thematics, symbology, mythology to the zoological context, that was not going to be the same. It's going to change because it's going to be charged with very deliberate storytelling. We were able to create this hybrid that wasn't either of those. It was another thing. Um, And the power of it really comes from its ability to bring pointed narrative storytelling to advocacy for conservation. So it's not an intellectual argument. It's kind of an emotional argument. Well, I mean, I I, I think emotion and intellect can't always be separated. I I noticed that there was a a, a great deal of um, cultural components to it. And, and you can't help but go to these places and, and not feel that cultural component. But I, I think that that whole idea of not being static is pretty much how life and nature unveils itself. Anyhow, when you go out in, into the African savanna, it's going to be different every time. Or you mentioned you went up 
to see where the reindeer herders were up in Norway. It's always going to be different. So now you've had this intellectual discussion somewhere in California. How do you start going out researching it? Because that's that's your yeah, so that's you, Joe. You you are the research guy. We had two two arms. One is a technical, like we need to learn about what it means to be involved in this business. We need to talk to people in wildlife conservation. We need to talk to people from the the zoo business who understand what that means. We need to talk to animal rights people. We need to talk to um, fish and wildlife people. We need to educate ourselves, right? We cannot do this in a naive way. We have to be knowledgeable. Um, and, and that means we're going to need to build an advisory group. We're going to need to build a support group. We need those people. Then on the other hand, we need to figure out of all the possible versions of the world that we might be able to portray, what can we portray and what kind of story can we put in that? For example, when you think of Africa, the first thing that comes to mind is like the Serengeti. When you think of Africa combined with animals equals safari, you think of the Serengeti, but the qualities of the Serengeti, the spatial quality of the Serengeti cannot be replicated in a theme park because its precise quality is to be a vast open place with no boundaries. You can't do that. So you can't build that place, it's too big. Um, and so we're like, okay, we got a kind of Africa uh, that is real, that is buildable, that will look and feel authentic when it's done. Authentic's a weird word, because of course it's not, it's accurate but it's authentic to us as authors, but it's not Africa, it's in Florida. So we ended up after a variety of research trips, zeroing in on a certain set of places, some of the riverine areas of the Okavango, um, some of the um, broken gallery forests of the Masai Mara and um, a place called um, Lake Manyara. Lake Manyara is a very small reserve uh, very almost theme park sized, and it combines within it a whole series of habitats that are almost laid out the way we would lay them out. So as time went on, about where we would send designers, architects, landscape designers uh, in order to do the research, and we do that as a process of elimination, remembering that ultimately we're not just building a place that's supposed to look real; it's supposed to seem real and yet at the same time be very pointed towards certain messages about our relationship to the world of animals and conservation. Well, there's two themes that you hit on because I know that it's supposed to be entertaining, right? And you just, you are able to actually deconstruct that word entertainment or to entertain to it has a little different meaning than most people think. Yeah, this is really, I'm very fascinated how often words reveal to us a much richer meaning than the meaning we think they have when we say them. And entertainment is one of these words. The actual meaning of the word entertain, it's related to retain, it's related to contain. Entertain is to be suspended, to be suspended in between, um, to be held in a sense in a bubble. Um, the word that we now use commonly is immersion. But this word entertainment is, that is what it means to be suspended in a world, um, to be entered between, tamed, contained. 
uh, held there for a moment in a place uh, where a set of rules allow you to believe a set of things. But isn't it's almost the perfect term for what you were trying to accomplish because you really do want to suspend people just in a, in a sliver of time. And, and again, having a, a lot of experience, especially in Africa, going to there, there were moments where I could be suspended and get that feeling, get that feeling. The, the, the one thing that Africa has, in a, and I'm not even sure if you, you guys looked into that, there's, I think it's, it's a um, term called petrichor, called earth smell. I don't know if you were able to replicate that. There's, there's a smell that after it rains, that these microspores are released. And maybe that would have been taking it, you know, a little too far. You'd probably have to spray some weird chemical that wasn't. Well, you know, you, you can you can touch upon other senses other than the visual. You can. Uh, but, you know, these products were made for huge numbers of people. And so certain techniques are more successful than others. Um, we didn't try to do anything too artificial because we have animals living there and the animals themselves become, um, become kind of the body of the environment. Uh, you know, their aromas, their movement, their patterns of behavior. This is what we want you to attend to. It's not Yes, it is a tour de force of visual representation. We want you to think about and have feelings about not just the animals, but this notion of what are they to us? What are we to them? How do our actions relate to these animals? Um, and then we can direct your energy to conservation programs. Of course, you know, the Disney Conservation Fund has over $100 million dollars. Uh, dispersed around the world uh, to conservation programs, the, the day that you spend in the park is not necessarily a day for a huge download of inf information. It's a day for inspiration so that you have energy to bring to the quest for information and the quest uh, for action. And, and $100 million towards conservation is no small amount. There's got to be a feeling of satisfaction for that. Yeah. No, it's kind of great. And I also like the strangely unlikely arc of that, that you start with an entertainment company with a perfectly successful model for what it does and how it does it. You propose that it's going to do some other thing. And that one of the results of this other thing you choose to do is a completely other thing, a conservation organization, which is utterly unrelated to the opening presence, uh, opening premise until you start to run this thing and suddenly you find yourself, oh yeah, it totally makes sense that we should have a conservation organization. Joe, from the time that you started, you, you have that conversation with the CEO of Disney to when the doors open, what kind of time span are we, are we talking about? That, that was eight years, which eight is years. on the long side. That's on the long side, but, but it's not uncommon. It takes many years to do these things. I mean, it takes years just to build them. And then of course it takes however many years thinking about it to get to the decision and then another set of years to do the design. So it, it can be very long between first idea and getting done. So, so when you stand there and they sort of open the gates, you know, you've done this for eight years. I would imagine that you not only are reflective upon the project, which is fantastic, but you've got to reflect a little on your life from where you came from. I mean, you didn't grow up 
necessarily knowing famous explorers or famous designers or any of these things. Did no, you, no. Was there a part of you that wishes that the eight-year-old Joe Rody would have seen this? How could yeah, you imagine I this? So. I mean, I mean, I grew up pretty limited economic means in a very, you know, working classy, poor neighborhood in Hawaii. Um, when you grow up that way, you don't have a very long horizon. You know, I mean, you just don't imagine that you're going to get very far from where you are because nobody else around you is getting very far from where they are. My adventures were walking up the streams in the Nuanu and Manoa Valley hunting for frogs and, you know, bugs and adding to my little mini zoo. And I could not imagine a much bigger world than than that. I mean, my big ambition when I was a kid that was ever to go to North America where I might see a buffalo, snow, and a train um, or find a dinosaur fossil, none of which is possible uh, where, I, where I grew up, right? I'm surrounded by this whole other very rich culture, which I was connected to through relatives and stuff. But, you know, you, you your horizon is very short. And so it would have been very inspirational to me as a little kid to to see that this was possible. Now, on the other hand, for all I know, if that had happened, it would have robbed me of the energy to actually pursue it. Uh, you know, because once you, you, you know this, I mean, exploration is not just, it's a compulsive behavior. Exploration is something like creativity. You, you have to do it, right? Um, I can't tell you the number of times I have diverted a, a path to go to a place just because I could see it. I mean, I can remember for the rest of my life just seeing things like a, a limestone outcropping rising out of the forests of Malaysia surrounded by, I mean, a helicopter, right? So I can't get to it. I see it go by, see it go by, go that, I, what is that? I want to go there. And, you know, that compulsion to explore, um, I think, is an engine that runs a lot of life energy. You, you've written a little about your childhood, and I'm trying to think if there was a pivotal person or moment or it was a series of events that happened in your life. You know, some kids have said, oh, I had an uncle who gave me a painting set or somebody took me under their wing. Do you do you look at at a juncture in your life where it could have gone one way, but it went obviously the right way? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I um, when I was growing up in Hawaii, my parents were friends uh, with an artist who's very well known within the islands. His name was Jean Charlot, and he himself has an extraordinary life and career. Uh, he was part of. Um, I believe it was Sylvanus Morley's expedition to Chichen Itza. Uh, he uh, involved in indigenous art. Um, and he was my first exposure to art, that to go to his house and to, and I remember seeing big watercolors from Chichen Itza at his house, um, like, like replicas of wall paintings and stuff. But that's the, so that there was such a thing called art that wasn't just kids drawing on a piece of paper. There's some other kind of art and that art takes you to the world. So that was one. And the second one, really, like a lot of, you know, young guys who grow up in this kind of constraint, I got my, I wasn't like a bad troublemaker, but clearly I was like, hey, I got to get out of this school and into a private boys school. Um, 
So I went to this private Catholic boys school uh, and I was, I'll say, accosted by, like approached by, dared by the head of the drama department. Like, hey, I hear you think you're an artist. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, I can, I can draw. He's like, you think you could design a set? And of course, what he didn't know is that I had spent my entire life on film sets. My dad was a cameraman, a cinematographer, so I'd been around film. So, so I said to him, I said, well, what do you guys think you could build? And he squints at me, he gets, puts his face right up on me, goes, you just designed it. We'll build it. And so my first set design was a set design for The Tempest. And it was a three-sided rotating mountain. Uh, with scrim <laughs> walls and a door made of flash paper that disappeared. And then we built it. Uh, and I was like, oh, that, that is a cool thing. That's a cool thing. And so I became involved in theater. And that is probably the single truly pivotal uh, thing that sent me in the direction that I have gone ever since. And but, that man's name was... Thomas Gusty. You've hit the nail on the head, really, because when a lot of schools are looking to cut budgets and stuff like theater departments are are one of the first to go, um, you know, had since then. All right. So a Shakespeare set was your your first thing. Did you ever do as a professional life anything on Shakespeare? I'm just you mean curious. you mean you mean as a Disney designer? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there was a moment where I was doing research for a Shakespeare hotel at one point. That there, I did, I did do that. But I pull from everything. You know, you know, people think of these designs as um, simply coming from the design firm, but all design exists as part of a huge continuum of design, which includes all of art history. Um, when we were working, um, one of my last big jobs was working on this avatar uh, land at Disney's Animal Kingdom, which is a whole metaphor for conservation and indigenous people. And we would talk about Bernini and we would talk about the great landscape painters of the American tradition, um, you know, Thomas Moran, because these are the people who have already solved a lot of the design problems we're trying to solve. So you are caught up in a continuum of design as a designer. You're not alone. You're part of a huge continuum of decisions uh, that you can access if you study, if you care to. Um, And that's, I think, how the better work happens. We only have a few minutes left, but you and I worked on a um, sort of a diversity project together. And I remember you speaking to the group and you said that if you approach a problem with the same type of people, you will generally get the same type of result. And so you've been a very big advocate for not only physical diversity, but diversity of ideas on how an artist uh, would approach something different than a, an engineer versus somebody else. You want to elaborate on that? Because I, th- I thought that was really a pivotal moment to that group, really opening its eyes to the world of possibility. Yeah. This is interesting, and it does relate to the idea of adventure, exploration, creativity. These things are related. They are related, and they are related within this idea of diversity. Um, You need to make yourself think differently. Your, Your brain does not want to do this. It wants things to be predictable. It wants things to go in the same track. But this is a dangerous place to be in times of change, um, 
when we set out on an expedition or when we set out on a creative enterprise, uh, we're trying to get somewhere new, someplace new. The purpose of assembling diverse input is, is actually as much to change yourself as it is um, to enrich a sense of direction. And you, you cannot change yourself if all you do is talk to yourself. So when you put a diverse group of people together, you also need to put together the mechanisms that allow them to have power to change you. Uh, so that your life, your future becomes an exploration, your own life, your future becomes an adventure and doesn't just become a rut that goes in a circle. And all organizations, all organizations can benefit from this, but especially in times like ours, where the underlying systems beneath us are in a state of change. Uh, so, so diversity is related to creativity, it's related to exploration, it's related to adventure, but in a different way, in a way that can make it very intimate, very personal, very transformative. Joe, you, you, you mentioned the word explore or explore a lot, and, and you you've say de facto from all your trips, become an explorer, deconstruct that word, because your, your definition of explorer may be different than mine or, or somebody listening. Right, so the word explore, is related to implore and deplore. The plore part has to do with saying something, speaking, um, making a statement. The X part has to do with getting out there. So originally an explorer was a Roman term for the guy on a hunt who's way out in front of the bush yelling back, that's the plore part, yelling back to, hey, there's a stream over here. Hey, I think we've got something in this direction. This is what it looks like out here. So explore, the word explore brings with it an obligation, not simply to go out and see what is there, but to come back and say what is there. Uh, and that to me, it, it, more of my career has probably been built around the second part, uh, you know, of, of speaking, of saying to people what is out there. But, but isn't that the tradition of the storyteller? Ever since people could speak, come out of a tree, out of a cave, there was always one person who went across that lake or the other side of the mountain and came back over a fire and said, you'll never guess what happened to me. Totally. I mean, this is really at the root of what separates us as humans from other creatures. At some point in our history, somebody walks away from the group over a hill, as you say, over somewhere, sees something of value and comes back. And literally our human language emerges from the attempt of this person, whoever they were, to get across an idea to another group of primates. It's like, no, no, I'm telling you, like zebras, you know, there's a hill, there's a river, then there's like a lot of zebras, you know. How do I even do that? And ever since then, we have this sort of relationship between the explorers and then the people who maintain the stasis of society and then the movement that happens, the changes, the evolutions that happen from the combination of the explorers and the, and the maintainers. And I'm going to leave you off um, really with the ultimate explorer, space, 
the final frontier. Joe, you, you retired one day and unretired pretty much uh, a few weeks later. You know, just leave us off. Where are you going next? So I'm, I'm going to be working with Virgin Galactic, helping them to define the broader meaning and the broader experience of private space travel. And I think in order, because you are an authentic guy, I think that you need to go to space to be able to speak about that. What do you think about that idea? The boy from Hawaii going up to the stars. If I have, see if I have that opportunity, I do believe that would be and I could truly, truly, everything I hear about this is that this is truly a transformative kind of epiphany experience. It would be hard to turn your back on that. Yeah, and it's kind of hard to turn our back on you. Joe, thank you so much for really inspiring us. The The, the process of of exploration, design, and art, it's, it's so interwoven, but very few people are able to really explain it in the way you do. And, and you really do make us think differently. And I'd like to thank you for that. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Rick. Every great expedition has to come to an end, but that doesn't mean we can't stay in touch. Send us your favorite expedition pictures and tell us about your most memorable journeys, large or small. All right, get something to write with. Here are my coordinates. www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. One more time, www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. That's it for today. Hope to see you out on the trail.